Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years ago, I came across an article called The Decline of the English Department. I was an English major, so the article was a little depressing. But in some ways, the argument was not shocking. The numbers of students majoring in English have declined over the last few decades, along with a bunch of other subjects, religious studies and languages and history. And people have started opting for majors with less philosophy and more math, majors that they think are going to help them get a job. Today, I'm going to talk to three people who might just change your worldview about math, about flying, and about your cell phone. The first of those is a math professor at Cornell named Stephen Strogatz. He thinks this whole notion that we should be teaching more and more kids advanced math because, you know, this is the age of STEM, that is wrong. Of course, if you want to be an engineer or you want to work on Wall Street as a quantitative analyst or you want to be a scientist, you should take calculus. But Strogat says it's ridiculous, and it's, it's counterproductive to force everyone to follow that advice. You know, think about all the kids that go through high school suffering through their algebra class. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you weren't one of them, <laughs> but maybe you I were. liked algebra. I suffered a little okay. later on, but algebra worked out well. Good. Which was the one that made you suffer? Uh, <laughs> I think trigonometry uh, was uh-huh. a bit of a hiccup for me. You know, I mean, because we hear this a lot in in the math world that people, when they find out I'm a mathematician or a math professor, usually the first reaction is they'll say something like, I really liked math until, and then there's Mm -hmm. something. You know, I really liked it until we got to fractions. Those were very confusing. Or I really liked it until algebra one. And what were all those polynomials again? Or what was the quad? I never used the quadratic formula in my life. Why did I learn that? You know, so we hear these kind of things. And for different people, it's like they hit the wall at a different place. For some, it's calculus. For some, it's something after calculus. But here's my point, that a lot of people we know live perfectly happy and productive lives and don't know much about math beyond arithmetic. That's just a fact, and I feel like my profession doesn't want to admit that. We're afraid to say that you, the honest truth is you don't need much math in the sense of truly needing it, like the way you do need to read. Right, you like when you, to, to go to, to the read. grocery store, to drive down the street, the math you need is minimal. Yeah, and that's true of most professions and most people's daily experience. And so when we make this case that... No, no, it's really important for you to learn algebra or geometry or trigonometry. People know by common sense that that's not true. Well, so then at what point do you think people should get to opt out? I mean, what if someone says, you know, I've taken math for a while and I'm really, I'm not into this. I mean, is it at the point where they're in sixth grade and they're doing fractions? Or do we say, no, no, stick with it a while longer. You got to get to algebra or you got to get to uh, trigonometry. That's the big question, and I don't really have a clear answer to that, but it's certainly the case that everybody has to understand arithmetic. That is, people have to have some sense about numbers, adding and subtracting. Things are expressed, like you go to 
buy jeans on sale and they'll say 20% off. Mm -hmm. You need to know what that means. Right. And (laughs) (laughs) Understanding um, sales is important. Yeah, sales are important. (laughs) And that's really the first hard topic. Nobody really has big trouble with adding and subtracting. It's when you get to percentages and fractions and decimals that a lot of people start to lose it. And I feel like that's important. We have to try hard to make sure everyone has that. But beyond that, I start to have my doubts. And it becomes increasingly doubtful the deeper you get. So the case for algebra or geometry, you know, sort of depends on your profession. If you're going to be an architect, you want to understand what a right angle is, you know, or people in construction work need to know that. But so there is what we could call number savvy, which is beyond arithmetic. It's, it's just using arithmetic, but it's sort of like numbers in your real life. And we don't do a very good job of teaching what you might think of as numeracy. Well, then should we rethink what sixth grade math is and eighth grade math and 10th grade math? Um, Should classes be more focused on when you put money away, here's how compound interest kicks in. Here's what a mortgage looks like. Um, Should we be teaching people sort of more what you can use in your life and just focusing less on the quadratic equation? Well, I would say yes and no. (laughs) That is, yes, we should be teaching everyone about those things you just mentioned, about money in your life, about thinking about distances and times and just a sense of numbers and what they mean. But I really wish we wouldn't stop there. This is why my answer is a little complicated, because there are people pushing for this first thing, expanding our education in numeracy and kind of everyday math. And I, I certainly agree with that. But some of the critics say that's all we really need to teach because that's all that people use. And, and that seems to me a mistake to go that far. Because math is not just about what you need in your daily life, just as learning to read is not just about reading the back of the cereal box. Mm -hmm. There's great pleasure from reading the world's great poetry or Shakespeare. And to say that we shouldn't teach the quadratic formula or calculus truly is like saying we shouldn't teach Shakespeare. Now, some people don't care. Like, we stopped teaching Latin for the most part. You know, this argument used to be made for Latin, that you'll understand the structure of the English language better. And it's true if you know Latin. But it's been decided, well, it's not that important, so we don't teach it anymore. And it's, you know, like a boutique subject. I would really hate to see that happen to math because really the role of math is threefold. There's, There's the math you need in your daily life. We can all agree about that. And we can do a much better job of teaching that. There's also the math that you need on the job for people who go into STEM. You know, that's this awful acronym about science, technology, engineering, and math. For the people who go into the really nice, high-paying, technical jobs of the future, those people do need advanced math, and we want to keep teaching it to them. But the third thing that we need math for is because it makes our life so much more rich and beautiful. That is, a person who understands about, let's say, waves. Like right now, I'm emitting sound waves from my mouth. And those waves are going into my microphone and being converted into electrical waves and coming across somehow, amazingly, to jiggle your eardrum, creating a wave (laughs) of vibration there. When you think about that, and then you think about the waves on the ocean and the waves that were recently detected coming from black holes colliding a billion years ago, you know, you start to get this wondrous feeling about the universe. And if you know nothing about waves and the science that now this, by the way, comes from trigonometry, the subject that you had trouble with. That's where we teach you about sine waves and cosine waves. That's the foundation. So if you never got that, you're missing a really nice part of 
what makes life enjoyable. Yeah. Well, see, the beauty was obviously not incorporated no. as well as it could have been into the <laughs> sine and cosine uh, uh, portion no, of, of my trigonometry. Yeah. So this is the thing that I feel like it would it's too stifling to just say we should teach people the math they need to get by. Yes, everyone needs to know that. But I, I want just like I want to teach Shakespeare and I want to teach Toni Morrison and to appreciate Michael Jordan and Roger Federer. I mean, these are things that are just enjoyable about mm-hmm. life. Why would we sacrifice that? Now, so, but in terms of our curriculum, you know, we don't do any of that because we're so busy. I, I believe we're so busy preparing people to be the rocket scientists of 1960. If you really think about our curriculum, it's very well designed for the time it was designed, which was when the space race was the thing. You know, Sputnik went up. We were scared of what the Russians could do. We, we geared up to make everyone learn algebra, trigonometry, and calculus, because that's actually the math you need to put things into space. That is the math of the space race. So you think we're stuck to some degree in 1960? I do. I, mm. think, I think our curriculum reflects its design of 50 years ago. And if you were to ask, what's the curriculum of the 21st century, which is, of course, a perfect question for your show, mm-hmm. I would like my colleagues to think harder about this. It's not the common core. It's not the thing that we teach. It's digital. It uses. It has to take computers seriously, obviously, because we're in the world of, you know, connections, the web, the internet. We should be talking about the branch of math called graph theory. We need to talk about risk and uncertainty, which is probability theory. We certainly still need calculus. It's the most powerful of all branches of math. But, but there's much more needed than that. So I, I think it's time to have an honest, open-hearted discussion about what should the math curriculum look like today. Do you remember um, what first attracted you to math? And then, I don't know if this was the same thing, but what made you think, and yeah, I'm going to do this my entire life? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I do remember, sure, because it was a life-changing experience. I, For me, school was always fun. I liked all the different parts of school, but somewhere around sophomore year of high school, I had a teacher who one day mentioned that there was a certain problem that he had never seen any student solve. And that got my attention. And I wondered what that was. He immediately, you know, he told us the question. And then this is what really got me. He said, I don't know how to solve it. I never heard a teacher say that before. This sounds like goodwill hunting. Did you come back (laughs) after hours and do it on the blackboard and nobody knew who had done it? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, That's yeah. okay. Um, not exactly. So, well, first of all, um, this was a hard question. This one I couldn't do, and I started thinking about it obsessively every day in French class, you know, while playing <laughs> JV basketball, and it, it caused problems for me. People would pass the ball to me. I wasn't paying attention because <laughs> my head was on this triangle problem that the teacher had given us. So anyway, I thought about it. And it was not an assignment. It was just an offhand remark. But I, I found it so entrancing to try to, I think probably, you know, as a child, I wanted to impress my teacher. But after a while, I just wanted to solve this problem because I couldn't get it. So I thought about it for something like half a year and eventually came up with an argument and showed it to my teacher, who was a very serious and stern former MIT graduate with a beard, you know, like a... <laughs> To that extent, like Goodwill Hunting, maybe, you know, like his his teacher. But yeah. he, you know, he said, yeah, that's you've done it. You've solved it. And it, it 
what was life-changing for me was not so much the teacher's praise, although that was nice, but, but more this feeling of exhilaration I got from the struggle and the eventual success. And I just wanted to do it again and again. I wanted a hard problem to think about and solve it. And I can't tell you exactly why. It was, it was just a good feeling. It meant more than a good feeling. It was a thrilling feeling. And it was like a, someone said to me the other day, so you're describing math as a gateway drug, you know? <laughs> like, this made me want to do more serious drugs. Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Steven Strogatz is the author of The Joy of X. He's also a professor of applied mathematics at Cornell Stephen, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. <laughs> Thanks very much, Kara. Everybody at the party is a many-sided polygon. When a guest arrives, they will count how many sides it has on. Standing by the window over there, there is a shape with four sides, so it's a square. And the one who has nine is looking fine, and its name is Nonagon. If your coffee maker breaks after a few years, what do you do? I'm guessing start to browse for a new coffee maker. And you're probably looking at the same scenario for a printer that breaks or a TV or a cell phone. To Kyle Weens, that is a huge failure of our system. The fact that people toss gadgets that are mostly fine and usually fixable. But companies love to sell us new stuff at high prices, so it's not really in their interest to make their products last a long time or to allow us to fix them easily. Kyle Weens is on a mission to change that, even if he's not making a lot of corporate friends along the way. He's the CEO of iFixit in San Luis Obispo, California. Kyle, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. How did you get into the business of taking apart phones or cracking open laptops, which is not, of course, what most of us do? Well, I got started because I was a poor college student and I didn't have any choice. I had to have my computer working and I couldn't afford to get a new one. I couldn't afford to pay somebody to fix it. So I pulled it apart and I fixed it myself. Did you find that it was really tough to fix or easier than you thought or what? Some A lot of repairs are easier than, than you'd ever think. Uh, some repairs, like swapping out the display on an iPhone, is actually a very easy repair to do. Uh, some repairs, like the one that I had with my laptop, was actually fairly tricky. It was pretty involved. There was a lot of things I had to take apart in order to get inside. And I was wishing at the time that I had a guide that would show me how to get in and, and do the repair. Hmm. And do companies make those kind of guides like that can walk you through, okay, here's how you repair your iPhone screen or whatever? Yes. So every company that makes a complex product writes what they call a service manual, so repair manual for the product. And their technician network, their authorized service providers, so the folks at the Apple store or the Ford mechanics down at the dealership, they have access to this information that teaches them how to repair these products. The catch is that it's not available to you and I. So even though there's a huge amount of repair information out there, uh, the manufacturers don't make it available. So that's really the, the, the missing link is that, yes, the repair information exists, but we can't have it. And this is a purposeful thing. They're like... We want you to go to the Apple store, to the Ford dealership. We don't want you to be able to figure these things out yourself. Yeah, and it's it's purposeful to the point that you have people that will get the manufacturer repair information, put it online, and they'll send lawyers after them demanding that they remove it from the Internet. 
it's this idea that you might own it, but the information about how to get inside and, and fix common things, you shouldn't have access to that. That's proprietary. Well, what are they, what are they scared of? That we are all going to be able to fix our own stuff and, and uh, take away the need to, you know, go to their service people? I mean, that's the pessimistic perspective is that this is a strategy to either force us to use their repair options or to force us to buy a new product. Uh, when you talk with manufacturers, they'll throw all, out all kinds of straw man arguments. They'll say, well, it's not safe for you to get in and repair your phone. It's safe for you to change the tire on your car if you get a flat, but it's not safe for you to repair your phone. Fixing phones is a extremely safe endeavor. I've never, ever heard of anybody damaged or hurt by, by fixing a phone. Couldn't you argue, though, that it maybe it's safe, but it's just so complicated that most people couldn't do it and they're just going to make the problem worse? Yeah, well, I think that's what most people tell themselves. I mean, we have so many products on our lives. They have electronics. We don't understand how the electronics work because we're not electrical engineers. And so we just punt on the issue and we say, well, you know, it's too complicated. Repairing pro most products is actually pretty simple. A repair is usually finding the piece that's broken inside and swapping it with a new one. So, for example, if you have a headphone jack on your phone that isn't, you know, connecting quite right, you just need to get a new headphone jack online and figure out, you know, that might be 10 or 20 screws and a little bit of, uh, you know, disconnecting some cables inside. But, like, swapping that out is something that anybody should be able to do. I mean, it's not people with PhDs that are assembling these products in China. Hmm. So if you think about it from, from your perspective, I think the, the question is, am I as smart as the person who assembled the product? And I think the answer in most people's cases, yes, you absolutely are capable of getting in and doing it. You just need to have an instruction guide. And by the way, the people that assemble these products also have instruction guides. Hmm. So that's why we started iFixit was the idea that what if we just created a free open place where anybody could go to learn how to take anything apart and fix it themselves? So one of the things in looking into this whole culture of trying to repair things yourself and then, as you were saying, the fact that companies aren't really interested in you repairing things yourself is that Apple changed the screws, the actual little screws that it uses to put phones together a few years back. And it's super hard now to even forget fixing their products to like get inside their products. Right. Yes. So Apple decided, in their infinite wisdom, to use uh, what we call a pentalobe screw. So traditional screws, you've got your Phillips screws, you've got flathead. There's also a screw called Torx that's commonly used for small products. Uh, and all of these screwdriver types are commonly available. You, you can get them. You might have one in your drawer. Apple decided to use a new screw that had never been seen before. Uh, and the only possible reason to use a new and unique screw that nobody has is to keep people out of their products. And it even got to the point where uh, Reuters caught Apple employees swapping out. If you took your phone in for a software update, they would swap your Phillips screws with these lock-you-out pentalobe screws just to keep people out and not tell them about it. So this is crazy. This is like the car companies saying, hey, when you take your car in for service, when we're done, we're going to weld the hood shut so you can't get <laughs> back in. Uh, it's preposterous. We, we should have a presumption that we can get inside anything that we own. It's our product, not theirs. We paid them for it. Uh, they've made their money. Uh, we should be able to extend the product's life if we need to. Well, and you've actually figured out uh, these crazy uh, newfangled screws that uh, that Apple created, these pentalobe screws. You, you have uh, figured out a way to get into their phones. Yes, so we make a... Uh, pentalobe screw and we sell it to everybody out there. We practically give them away. We do uh, every year we do a liberation week around July 4th where we give away <laughs> tens of thousands of these screwdrivers. 
And we'll give people, we don't just give them the screwdriver, we also give them a replacement Phillips screw that you can put in your phone so that you can get into it at any point. How much does Apple dislike you? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> well, uh, do you have any sense? Have they ever contacted you or, you know, have you seen uh, mean chatter about you, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I can tell you that we work on a number of, of standards where we work on, on things like trying to improve the recyclability of phones, uh, environmental standards that are, that are working to improve the sustainability of the electronics ecosystem as a whole. And we'll have recyclers come in and say, hey, these proprietary screwdrivers are making it more expensive to recycle. Or, hey, you have a product that you glue the battery in that's making it really challenging to recycle. Uh, and Apple has been uh, really aggressive at pushing back against the recycling community and saying, no, we don't really care how recyclable our products are. We don't really care how repairable our products are. What matters to us is that we have something that is compact and thin and can be manufactured inexpensively. I'm interested in this idea of um, being able to fix stuff and, and recycle I mean, that has been something, this idea of all this tech waste, you know, that every couple of years we're like, I need a new laptop, I need a new phone, there's something way cooler out there that I want to get. And so we, you know, chuck whatever we have. Is this move to keep you out of phones, to make it hard to repair, is that just increasing the amount of um, e-waste out there? Yes, yeah, so it, there is a huge problem with these electronics that we don't want anymore. Uh, it, it takes a huge amount of energy and natural resources to manufacture these products. It takes over 500 pounds of raw material to make a phone. So we need to do a better job of trying to say, hey, if we're going to make something, let's get the maximum utility out of this. Uh, and this is where, you know, if you can sell a product after you're done with it and somebody else is going to use it, that's a wonderful thing because, you you know, instead of a phone just being used for a year and that material impact of, you know, mining stuff out of the ground, that 500 pounds of raw material, if you can have that used for five or 10 years before it's at end of life, that's a really, really good thing. But then don't you bump up against making money? I mean, if you can make a phone last for 10 years and not two years, um, I mean, that's really going to hurt companies that uh, make phones. I mean, aren't we seeing sort of the, the clashing of two ideologies? One is make things sustainable, and the other is make money and get people to buy things. Right. Well, and this is where we have to make a decision. We have to say, you know, do we want to you know, support manufacturers who make quality products that last a long time? If you look at the power tool industry, for example, no one would buy a power drill that will only last for a year or two. Everybody wants tools that last a long time. You look at appliances. You know, it used to be you bought a refrigerator and it would last for 20 or 30 years. Now I was just in the appliance store and they say, yeah, they last eight or nine years. I said, well, is there one that I can buy that lasts longer? They say, no, not really. All the manufacturers are doing the same thing. Hmm. So I, I don't think anybody wants to buy a refrigerator that only lasts eight years. <laughs> Uh, this is not a good thing for society, and I don't think it's a good thing for the appliance brands over the long term. It really seems like there's an opportunity for manufacturers to step up and design long-lasting products and for the rest of us to support that. And maybe the shift instead of a manufacturing-oriented society where, where all of the profit and all of the, the economic growth comes from manufacturing, maybe if we shift over to service and we look at supporting local repair economies, that's a way – uh, where you know the repair folks are going to be buying parts from manufacturers, so they still have an opportunity to make money. Uh, consumers are supporting repair uh, jobs that are local, uh, and we can move away from this like mass market where all the manufacturing jobs are in Asia and back toward a local economy. You know, 
you often think of people who tinker and people who really like get under the hood as some of the people who come up with the most new and creative ideas. If people are not able to tinker with devices, to improve them, to figure out how they work, are we losing out on a whole bunch of uh, innovations that we might otherwise get? Yes, I think so. If you look at what inspires people to go into engineering, what inspires inventors and creators, they're tinkers. And when I go to schools, we'll go to an elementary school classroom, we'll say, here's a bunch of iPods. You want to take them apart and see what makes them tick? Uh, the, the kid's first reaction is horror because parents have been telling them, don't take things apart. Don't take the lamp apart. Stop taking stuff apart. And when we convince them, no, actually, it's really okay for you to take this thing apart, their eyes light up and they get really excited. Hmm. So we have this built-in system in our culture where we're telling people, no, it's not okay to tinker. We put a special screw on the phone. It's not okay to get inside this thing. And I think that's exactly the opposite of, of the sort of society that we want. We should be designing products that encourage tinkering, that encourage people to go into engineering, that encourage the next generation of innovators. Kyle Weens is the CEO of iFixit. It's a website that helps people repair their computers and electronics Kyle, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, this was fun. By the way, we reached out to Apple for a comment on their switch to those unusual pentalobe screws. They didn't respond. What aspects of your life really define you isn't easy. There's the people that you have relationships with, there's the culture you come from, and there's the stuff you buy. Your sneakers, your cell phone, your car. A century ago, if you were riding around in a car, you were cutting edge. But a few decades later, a car was kind of meh. They were everywhere. The hot ticket by that time was a seat in an airplane. Airplanes gave Americans a new frontier, and it was a frontier they thought they owned because of the work of the Wright brothers. Plus, to be honest, a seat in an airplane used to be a much cooler thing. Today's menu includes a fresh fruit salad, a shrimp cocktail, a chocolate nut sundae, and the main course, a double lamb chop, potatoes Parisienne, and Brussels sprouts Delmonico. Jennifer Van Vleck is here to talk about the era when airplanes defined us. She's the author of Empire of the Air, Aviation and the American Ascendancy, and she's an assistant professor of history at Yale. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So how did this ability to fly, uh, which at one time was a really novel technology, how do you think that changed how Americans thought about themselves? Well, it changed the ways that Americans understood the place of the United States in the world, because as a globalizing technology that seemed to literally shrink physical distances, um, it really made Americans feel that uh, the United States, first of all, could um, kind of expand anywhere in the world, kind of both commercially and militarily. On the one hand, there was a kind of a notion that this would be beneficial for the United States. But on the other hand, the United States had long been protected by 
the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And so, so with the invention of flight, there was also some concern that this new technology would actually lead to problems for national security. Well, it was also sort of the beginning of people feeling like the world was getting smaller. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a quote that you have in your book, a great quote from Franklin Roosevelt saying, gee, I don't know if people in America are going to be interested in the people in Java, but they're going to have to be because now they're our neighbors. Exactly. So there was also an increasing awareness of other cultures and both in the the kind of the literal sense of airplanes facilitating the transport of people and goods from other countries to and from the United States. But there was also in media coverage of aviation, which was prevalent during the mid 20th century. I mean, the airplane was just ubiquitous in newspapers, in popular magazines like Life and Time, in Hollywood movies. New York to London, in the same time that it takes you to go and see a baseball doubleheader. New York to London in six and a half magic hours. It all goes so fast now and it's so comfortable that you feel as if you hadn't traveled at all. And in all of this kind of popular discourse was basically the idea that the airplane was kind of opening the doors of the world um, to the United States. And so, again, that brought kind of both potential and in some ways peril. A lot of your research, uh, a lot of this book centers around an airline that's now defunct. I remember it uh, vaguely from my childhood, Pan Am. What was so special about Pan Am? I mean, there's certainly a lot of airlines that have gone out over time. It's a very tough business to be in. Why focus on this particular one? So first of all, Pan Am was the United States' first international airline. It was founded in 1927. And until the end of World War II in 1945, it held a monopoly on international routes originating in the United States. So for that period of time, it was the only international airlines. And then in the post-war period, even after its monopoly was dismantled, it was still very much the the, the kind of the unofficial flagship carrier of the nation that had this unparalleled iconic status in American culture, which we can see even today in films like Catch Me If You Can or uh, the ill-fated ABC television series called Pan Am. Yes, which was only on pictures of very glamorous flight attendants, you know, getting on and off planes. Exactly. And more than any other airline, it just it was just synonymous with that kind of allure and the cosmic the kind of cosmopolitan glamour that was associated with international air travel at the mid 20th century. Pan Am also invented luxury in the skies. And they've never forgotten it. In first class on a transatlantic 747, all is space and privacy. Pan Am, you can't beat the experience. When was that time? I mean, was there such a time, uh, maybe it only exists in our imagination, but that time when people thought of air travel as so glamorous and there was this whole sort of theater and the stewardesses were part of it. Um, If you could uh, get a ticket, you'd be part of it. 
Right. So the so-called golden age of air travel is typically thought of as the 1930s through the 1960s. And I think your characterization of it is exactly right, partially because flying, especially international flying, was so prohibitively expensive and airlines were competing with steamships, at least in the international arena. And steamships, of course, were luxury liners and they offered all of these services. So airlines felt that they as well needed to meet that level of service. But, you know, interestingly, even though we we now look back on that era nostalgically in comparison today when flying is basically no more glamorous than taking a Greyhound bus. That's right. It seems like just you shuttle them on and you have to get the hordes off now. Right. And there are absolutely very important differences between then and now. But one of the really interesting and surprising things that I found in my research was that even during the so-called golden age of air travel, passengers complained a lot. So in the late 40s, for example, after World War II, there was a huge boom in air travel, both domestically and internationally. Americans were more prosperous, so they had money to spend. And the war had kind of created this whole infrastructure of airports and, you know, and, and, and facilities that could theoretically sustain the passenger boom, but it turned out that they actually couldn't. And so people complained all the time that airports were too crowded, that planes had to circle the airport for up to an hour sometimes before getting clearance to land because the airports just could not handle the volume of traffic. People complained that airports were dirty. So it was really funny to me to kind of, you know, even though on the one hand, air travel definitely did have a, a kind of glamour that it doesn't now and airlines offered services routinely, you know, like dinner on China plates and free champagne and, you know, those kinds of things. At the same time, the experience wasn't always pleasant. And also before the invention of jets, air travel was incredibly noisy and often physically uncomfortable. So I think sometimes, you know, in our nostalgia, we can kind of (laughs) we can kind of miss some of the problems that occurred even during that era. Okay, well, here we are 100 plus years into the history of aviation. Uh, When you get on a plane, where do you think this is all going? What do you see? Uh, what, What does history tell you? You know, it's a really interesting moment, I think, in the history of commercial aviation right now because we're seeing two parallel trends. On the one hand... Airlines within the United States are seeking, are constantly seeking cost-saving measures. So I feel like every few weeks there's a story that comes out in the news about how you know one airline or another has decided to make its seats even smaller, you know, to pack more right, passengers. Right, right, and on like the plane. water is not allowed anymore yeah, unless you pay twenty-five allowed. cents. Exactly, exactly, and the frequency of flights are you know is often being reduced and you know and again the you know the experiences for people who fly in coach uh, for that matter is increasingly one that isn't very pleasant but on the other hand we're also seeing this trend in which luxury flying has really experienced a huge resurgence particularly particularly with airlines that are operated by very wealthy countries in East Asia and yeah. the Middle East like Singapore Airlines for example which offer these incredible incredible first class accommodations you know whole suites with yeah. showers and beds and right well i see advertisements for this and i think First of all, I don't know one person who flies first class anywhere, Um, although if they are spending money to create these suites and then they're spending money to run the ads, 
there's got to be a big enough cadre of people who are willing to pay for this that it's worth it. Right, right. And and it even extends to airports. Certain international airports are now building passenger lounges whereby first-class passengers can essentially just bypass the regular yeah, security yeah. lines and everything else in the airport. And so it's this very, very class-stratified experience, I think, to a much greater degree than ever before in history. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out. Jennifer Van Vleck is an assistant professor of history at Yale. She's the author of Empire of the Air, Aviation and the American Ascendancy. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. We are now making our descent. I won't be speaking to you again, as we'll be in our landing pattern over London in the next few minutes. It was a pleasure to have you aboard our jet clipper. We hope to have you with us again soon. Thank you. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.